This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following content could in fact be explicit, contain moments of explicitity, flex of explicature, trace elements of explication. Actually, that last one's a goal. Friday, February 5th, 2021, from Slate, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The senators took the floor on Thursday morning, didn't break for lunch, and worked past dusk, past dinner time, past their usual postprandial cordials. And I don't want to cut to the end of the whole shebang called the Voterama and ruin the drama, and I won't because there really wasn't that much drama. But the exercise was a legislative necessity to get to the step of actually voting on a COVID relief bill. But it wasn't the COVID relief bill. So I will cut to the part where Bernie Sanders, somewhat of a hero of the night, somewhat of a hero of the Voterama, giving away the most impressive detail of the entire day or the entire day, night, and next day. We now come to the end of a debate that has gone on for over 14 hours. Yes, 14 hours. There were 550 amendments offered, and each one got two minutes of debate. So they were lucky to get out of there in just 14 hours. And what's worse, one out of every 100 people in that room for those 14 hours was Ted Cruz. The senator from Texas did provide a brief moment of bipartisanship, however, when his fellow Republican, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, stood up to rip a Cruz amendment that he said was a ripoff of farmers in his state. Can you imagine the free market person that Senator Cruz is wanting the government to set prices? This is, this is, dirt, this is dirty big oil versus clean burning ethanol. And, and, uh, and for the benefit of people on the other side of the aisle, I had conversations with Mr. Regan this week. He, he said that uh, uh, your president, our president was for ethanol. Uh, he said, uh, he, he, uh, he also said, or I know that campaigning in Iowa, Biden campaigned for ethanol. So this is an opportunity. And this business that this isn't going to cost anything, uh, EPA itself said that there's no compliance cost. And EPA and the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals made very clear that these, uh, these uh, waivers for small refineries were violating the Senator's law. time has expired. Uh, Mr. President. Hear that cheering? That is House of Commons type stuff right there. You don't normally hear that in the Senate. Ted Cruz, uniter. Perhaps the only truly surprising moment was provided by Bernie Sanders. Now, I called him the hero because as chair of the Senate Budget Committees in the middle of the action, he ran the show and he was clear from the outset who he was fighting for, the little guy, the minimum wage worker. And by the outset, I mean, you know, four hours in when this statement came. Well, let us be clear. The minimum wage in this country has not been raised since the year 2007. It now stands at $7.00. 
and 25 cents an hour. That is a starvation wage. That is an embarrassment. And that minimum wage must be increased so that we can give a pay raise to some 32 million workers. But Joni Ernst, the other Iowa senator, took issue with a raise to $15 an hour, especially for a constituency like hers. The cost of living in states like Iowa is very different than the cost of living in states like New York or California. We should not have a one-size-fits-all policy set by Washington politicians. And then Senator Sanders pulled his surprise move. He said, you know what? You're right. I shan't be pushing for $15 right away. There appears to be some misunderstanding. As the author of the Raise the Wage Act, it was never my intention to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour immediately and during the pandemic. My legislation gradually increases the minimum wage to $15 an hour over a five-year period. And that is what I believe we have got to do. We need to do it in the reconciliation bill, and we need to end the crisis of starvation wages in Iowa and around the United States. That was either one senator listening to the concerns of another or more likely a more skilled senator recognizing that a mistake was made by an opponent who overstated and misstated the intentions of the skilled senator. But like I say, the entire exercise was mostly about intention. It was the first important step, but it doesn't mean that the relief package will pass. It doesn't mean how big the relief package will eventually be. It does signal that there is an opportunity for bipartisanship. Oh no, not about the budget or the pandemic or reconciliation, but about the idea that even an 87-year-old who's usually asleep by 7.30 p.m. can score some points off of Ted Cruz. On the show today, it's an Antan twig. We owed you one. But first, QAnon is the conspiracy that made its way to the Capitol in the form of rioters and also a member whose beliefs are a riot of nonsense, danger, and dishonesty. But I wanted to get more into how QAnon works, how it really works, and where it might be going from here. David Gilbert of Vice has been in the forums, has been following the feeds, has been monitoring the madness, and he joins us next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Marjorie Taylor Greene believes in 9-11. That was actually never an issue. Even the conspiracy theorist believes, well, first of all, if you look at a calendar, there is a date, 9-11-2001. And second of all, something happened. Uh, their buildings aren't there now, but conspiracy theorists believe it was an inside job and they doubt planes at the Pentagon. But she wants you to know she believes in 9-11. She also believes, or at least did until she disavowed it the other day, she also believes that the Vegas mass shooting was a false flag operation that the Sandy Hook shooting was a false flag operation, that the Parkland shooting didn't happen or happened in a way to try to take guns away. She believes in a lot of crazy things. As of yesterday, we found out, I guess she doesn't believe in a lot of them. Most of her beliefs 
fall or at least correlate to the beliefs of QAnon. But importantly, not all. And in fact, she started declaring that she had some of these beliefs before a guy named Q even started his drippings on social media. I want to get into what Marjorie Taylor Greene believes, but also how QAnon is really working in the United States and the world. Joining me now is David Gilbert. He reports all this stuff out for Vice News. David, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. So you put together a very good, useful compendium of, uh, I'll read the headline, here's every disturbing conspiracy Marjorie Taylor Greene believes in. And we saw yesterday her very half-heartedly disavowing them and giving a horrible explanation of how she came to them. But very importantly, if you look at the timeline, she's been believing this crap, like 9-11 conspiracy theories, before anyone named Q ever came to the public's attention, right? Um, yeah, she seemed as if it kind of, she was waiting for Q to come along, essentially. And to be honest, that's, that's the way for a lot of Q and on believers is they were primed or they have been primed for a while to believe in some conspiracy theory and Q and on came along and it just provided the perfect vehicle for all these different, you know, 9-11 deniers, false flag shooting, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers. It's kind of an umbrella term for that all these people have kind of, you know, hooked onto and, and promoted. So when did when was the first Q drop on 4chan? Uh, October 2017. So it was a whole month later before uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to, to put up a half-hour video discussing Q when pretty much no one in the U.S. had ever heard about Q. Uh, she was she was a month after the first drop. She was right there. She was discussing it, calling him a patriot. She described it last night in her speech, saying that she had become disillusioned in 2017 with the news media, Fox and CNN, saying that she wasn't kind of getting the information that she needed. And so she went on the Internet looking for this information. And this is what she found. Um, and within a month in that video, she seems convinced. She seems sure that this is there's something here this has to be explored we have to promote it yeah and before there was even a cue because of her dissatisfaction she was reading and writing about uh, not just the 9-11 conspiracies with which were out there but a conspiracy that has become a central tenant of Q: democratic child sex trafficking and abuse yeah, she was writing for uh, American Truth Seekers, a now defunct uh, conspiracy website. She wrote something like 60 articles for them. This is after she had retired from her family business, uh, bought or created a CrossFit gym and then sold it. So she was looking for something to do, obviously, with her time. And so she fell into writing conspiracy theories for this website. And she remarkably predicted almost exactly what Q would be based on. But... It, it's not that surprising, really, because this kind of, you know, global child sex trafficking ring is is kind of a, a theory that's been circling the Internet for, for decades. Uh, it's not new. It's just been given a new lease of life by Q. What's the best way to explain to people that here are Q's technical beliefs, but here are the lived beliefs that someone who might be described as a QAnon believer would probably have? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a good question. It's a, it's a major problem, I think, because it's changing, but a lot of the coverage of QAnon up until now 
has been of the form of kind of pointing and laughing at it um, as if it's something completely off the wall, as if it's something that isn't, you know, that only crazy people and loonies take part in it. The, the Democrats' message this week where they kind of basically said that only uneducated people were following QAnon was another part of that. And it's really dangerous because I've been speaking in the last couple of weeks to, to family members of people who have a QAnon person in their life and the breadth and scale of the different levels of society and different wealth and different education. Um, you know, there's, there's people with masters degrees, there's teachers, there's doctors, there's it's white, it's black, it's Asian. There isn't a typical QAnon believer really. Um, mostly they are kind of believe in some form of Christianity, but it's not a good idea to pigeonhole people. And I think one of the ways that we can maybe get better at talking about what QAnon is and getting people to understand it is telling the stories of the people who are suffering because of QAnon. And by doing that, you'll, you know, you'll expose people to realize that their neighbors, their friends, uh, possibly even their relatives could be going down this rabbit hole. Um, they'll be able to see the signs that are taken. So I think it's, we need to focus more on talking about the impact that this cult is having to people across the US. And it's from, from the reporting I've been doing, it's, it's devastating. You know, people are losing their families. Husbands are, and wives are getting divorced. Family members are no longer talking. There's several suicides after happening that have been linked to QAnon. And it's, it's, it's really, really terrifying to listen to these stories. And I think that is something that people can relate to rather than this kind of more extreme version of QAnon. So I think by promoting, or not promoting, but highlighting that aspect of QAnon, I think people will get a better idea of just how dangerous and insidious this cult is. What is the either psychological or propagandistic purpose of Q, the person who is Q, or the people who create the QAnon mythos? How does the crazy stuff reinforce the practical on-the-ground stuff? To try and figure out how the kind of crazy stuff is helping, you know, get to the ultimate goal of keeping Trump in power, that's, that's a, a pretty impossible question to answer, I think, without knowing who's behind Q. Um, and then if you're going to start down that road, you're going to get into a really, really difficult conversation because no one knows and if people tell you they know then they don't because there's no one has produced conclusive evidence yet the prevailing theory is that when it started on 4chan it was started by someone as a a game you know because it had happened before there was a guy called fbi and on and there was a highway patrolman and on and there was a couple of other you know this game on 4chan where people pretended to be high-ranking members of government and people kind of played along and then this kind of got out of hand, this QAnon one. It just happened at the right time. And then it moved to Aitken and Jim and Ron Watkins, the, the people who ran Aitken, kind of took it over. And then they ran it until now. Um, that's kind of the, the basic simplistic theory. There's, there's other theories saying that it's a psyop. And you don't want to get into that because it's just it's more conspiracy theory area. But yeah. to, if you want to try and fix theory. Exactly. And like you, you can, I think in the, la, in the QAnon community in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk on that, a lot of energy expended on kind of debunking stuff. And it's just wasting time because I think the real 
important thing about QAnon is how it is spreading in the US now um, and the damage that it's doing. And that's what where this focus should be on. Is the identity of Q the actual person or persons anonymized to every known person in the world? Is there any network board administrator who knows that is? Yeah, Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins know who Q is. Or at least they facilitate Q posting on Aitken. And can they be gotten to? Are they violating uh, laws? They don't live in the, they, do they yeah, live in the vi- like they're, they're either violating laws. One of the laws they're violating is that Q is impersonating a um, federal government official, which is a which breaks the law as far as I know. Um, now, whether Jim or Ron Watkins are actually posting his Q or they're facilitating it, they're still potentially in legal trouble. Ron Watkins is currently, I believe, in Japan, or was at least recently. Uh, Jim Watkins is in the Philippines, though he does come back to the U.S. He, he testified before the Senate last year, so he does come back and forth to the U.S. But they've always denied being Q or had anything to do with Q. But most people, most people believe that they at least know who Q is or are facilitating the, the posting of the, the Q drops. Now, you talked about 12 people who are kind of keeping this myth alive. Are they known? Some. Some are known. Some aren't. Um, it, it's more than 12, but like, you know, at least a dozen kind of big major accounts. And they all have their own. Like, there are some of them that are true believers who are doing it just because they believe deeply in Q and the purpose of Q. And a lot of them are grifters who are trying to make money off their followers by getting them to sign up to subscriptions and uh, you know, video services and podcasts and Patreon. And although they've been kicked off most kind of mainstream services like Patreon or PayPal and stuff like that. So they're, they're kind of relying on more fringe websites to do the same thing, but they want to keep it going because they have built up this following over the course of the last three years to become, to be in positions of power where otherwise, you know, these guys wouldn't have the position of power. And they don't want to lose that because it is a hugely potent thing. Yeah. And I've been on some of these boards too. And one characteristic is it's very hard for a person with a rational brain to apply rationality, but every single thing that is said is um, characterized when it doesn't come true or clearly seems to be wrong. It's always explained and people buy it. Oh no, don't you understand? This was the misinformation they had to give to throw off the scent of the real story. So my point is that within these cults, and certainly it's true of QAnon, it will never collapse under its own weight. People will never see for themselves without some sort of outside force that this thing was lying to them all the time. Absolutely. Like, this is what infuriated me when I saw Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech last night is her line was that she saw some misinformation in QAnon. And like, that that's 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 something that QAnon people have say all the time. It's like she was just repeating what they say because there was a Q drop saying disinformation is necessary, and so that every time something happens, it doesn't seem to fit in the plan. They just go back. Oh, Q said disinformation is necessary, so that's this is just disinformation. Will this can be disinformation? But something that happened that does seem to fit with the plan, that's not disinformation. That's that's real. So there's no logic to this. This is just kind of. They can do whatever mental gymnastics they need to do in order to make it work. In fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech, from what I understand of Q, would probably hearten a lot of them. I think it was probably a great day for QAnon that this was, you know, the big comeuppance that their most public adherent ever had to face. Oh, like, yeah, I wrote about it this morning. It's, it's, I, I kind of did a translation for, for people who, like, because if you, if you listen to the speech, 
you know, it, it makes zero sense how she explained how she fell into the, the QAnon rabbit hole. It doesn't make sense. But if you kind of read it with a QAnon mindset, it makes perfect sense. And on the boards this morning, no one was disavowing Marjorie Taylor Greene. They were, you know, threatening to kill the 11 Republicans who voted against her. But no one was saying, oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's a traitor. They were saying, of course, she had to say this because she she's better off inside than outside. So she had to, to say. And the way of twisting it today was that she said, from mis- misinformation and lies in QAnon. This is, a, again, another ongoing thing with some followers because Q in a drop once says there is no QAnon. There is only Q and there is Anons. And his thing was that QAnon is just a, something that the mainstream media has made up to demonize this movement. So... Whenever someone says QAnon, they kind of take it that they're not really talking about the Q or the movement. They're just they're just kind of pandering to the mainstream media. So they didn't see what Marjorie Taylor Greene said as a, a disavowal of QAnon whatsoever. Yeah. So, David, how does this end? Does this end with arresting the right people, shutting down the right websites, bringing around the right social conditions? That's a big lift so that people aren't drawn to this. How does this end? I I don't know. Like I I really think I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it is happening that the FBI hasn't been doing more to look at Jim and Ron Watkins who are facilitating whatever else they may be guilty of. They're facilitating Q by allowing him post or them post on on their website and they have information about who this is. You know, getting that information would kind of, you know, if it turned out that they could prove that Jim Watkins was behind it, who's this he's an ex-army vet, he's a currently a pig farmer in in the philippines and he is some of his other websites host child abuse imagery if they could show that it was actually jim watkins is the person who's been posting these q drops then that would have a massive impact on the ability for of the community to kind of keep up its belief that there is some conspiracy going on here but i think no matter what happens that even if that did happen, that would be spun as a kind of a you know a deep state intervention to try and you know stop QAnon from taking over the world or something. The real danger, I think, is as you said that there are the social conditions currently in the U.S. that are absolutely perfect to radicalize a huge swathe of people uh, into this, and it's happening still on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Not overtly, but covertly through different communities, like even retirement communities, because older people are involved in this, and especially the wellness and yoga and natural health communities. That's a big problem because the the influencers are still there and they're using kind of subtle hints about QAnon, but not overt, so they won't be banned. Just while there is such division in the US and people are looking for an answer or a solution, then QAnon will be a very attractive proposition to a lot of people. Um, And just the way it's set up, the way it's, you know, the do your own research aspect of it, the fact that you feel like you're on the inside of something that no one else knows about, that's hugely appealing to a lot of people. And it, it makes it so much harder then to try and get people out or deprogram them. Well, one way this ends, and it wouldn't be an end, but it would be uh, it would be a hindrance to their growth, is some horrific, undeniable atrocity committed by QAnon believers in the name of QAnon that we all see. Now, you might be saying, or one might be saying, wait, didn't we just have this with the attack on the Capitol? Again, 
the police officer who died directly, Brian Sicknick. We didn't see that on film. That's really important for convincing people and making people have moral clarity. Um, plus, there were certainly people involved in that who didn't really believe in QAnon or were espousing other ideas. I just think of Timothy McVeigh and his horrific bombing of the Oklahoma, the Murrah Federal Building. It did, to some extent, set back the movement. We know that white nationalism is still here, but it went so far in trying to, you know, vindicate whatever uh, grievances he had about Ruby Ridge that, you know, the experts will tell you for a time, it discredited that ideology. I could see something like that happening to QAnon. Worryingly, it's kind of a growing possibility that there is, you know, people are getting more and more radicalized. If you listen to the, the stories that people tell about their family members, like people are getting more violent. Um, they're, you know, and the move now towards the sovereign citizen or the kind of merging with the sovereign citizen movement who are trying to work with QAnon believers because, you know, a lot of their beliefs overlap. That's worrying. And they're being pushed to more extreme websites where groups are kind of preying on QAnon believers to kind of bring them into the fold of white nationalism, whatever else. But some huge, terrible incident could happen very soon. I'm not sure I agree with you that that would necessarily have a massive impact on the the growth of Q. David Gilbert covers, among other things, QAnon for Vice News. He does a great job, and he's opened my eyes to a lot of things that I'm not sure I'm glad I saw. David, great talking to you. Thanks, Mike. And now before the spiel, I would like to recommend you go back and listen to Monday's episode. If you missed it, there was a lot of good stuff about GameStop and how the guys on Reddit are no heroes and how a knee jerk default to cheering on the populists isn't always the right move. Plus a great interview with Jill Lepore. The computer in people's minds was this giant, giant, giant machine, like the size of an airport hangar or something that could control the whole universe. And so when the story of Kennedy's campaign, having purchased the consulting services of this company that sold services of a people machine, people really freaked out and said, like, this is the end of democracy. I know by the time Friday comes around, you may have missed one. And if you want my recommendation, the Monday show is a good one, plus a little Bit of a gateway drug, because that Lepore interviews a two-parter, and Tuesday's the second part. And now, the spiel, and not just the spiel, an Antan twig, our word for a three-week period in which we go over, dissect, disgust, apologize. Did I say disgust? Yes, express disgust, but also discuss many of the statements I have made and many of the statements you have made back to me. You know, it's 2021 and we're getting closer and closer to a form of communication that is instantaneous and online. I prefer the old-fashioned handwritten missive, but some of you even send me emails, others Twitter, and I will even get into an area of the internet that I've since given up on. It's called Facebook. But perhaps the winner of the lobster of the Antan Twig will be from that most Isley-esque hive of scum and villainy. So first, I would like to thank uh, David Sirota, who at first I 
was a little worried. I thought it might be David Serrata, who is a Bernie Sanders spokesman in kind of a left-wing flamethrower, bomb thrower. It's funny how bomb throwers and flamethrowers are very similar, but isn't a bomb just a means to produce a flame, whereas the flame is the flame itself? The bomb could go further, but the flame is much more impressive and can be seen from afar. Anyway, Serrata was writing about a segment I did where I played a lot of those ads and talked about moderate to severe and mild to moderate and the protection they might provide from coronavirus. And he says, I'm an infectious disease doctor and longtime listener. You had me at infectious. FYI, the definitions of moderate to severe COVID are defined in, and then he linked to a bunch of protocols from Johnson and Johnson studies. And I said, I'd delve into it. And I did. And I understand. And actually, I did understand it going in. I made a bit of light fun at the verbiage of these commercials because I think the public is trying to watch these commercials and they might not understand mild to moderate, moderate to severe nomenclature when it comes to coronavirus, which you don't want to get, but you also want to prevent anyone from getting mild or even asymptomatic coronavirus. To this point, another listener, Armin Sprecher, or in German, Armand Speaker, writes, Hi, Mike, I enjoy your rants. Their spiels, but we'll go on. But today's would be even better if a bit of nuance were added. When isn't that true? Claims like ones found in ads for pharmaceuticals require evidence, and the studies that generate that evidence for medical claims need to have well-defined clinical endpoints. Exactly what is meant by mild, moderate, severe can and must be found in the studies that allowed for licensure of this product being advertised. The FDA sets the rules that you could say in the ads. I agree it makes for lousy ads, but at least they're unambiguous. The alternative is the vacuous nonsense in the neutraceutical space, which is, you know, about support for the immune system or wellness. Neutraceutical, which is a very, I guess it's a real scientist's word for vitamins. Maybe a real scientist, a Sprecher-type scientist, would not want to use scientist willy-nilly. Matthew Asher, Ashar, writes, Mike, love the gist, but not long ago, you rightfully chastised Laura Ingram for her defensive deployment of the mocking voice. Then right around the seven-minute mark of today's podcast, this was one, oh, from back in 2020, did you not use the mocking voice to dismiss criticism of the Biden cabinet? Just asking. Just asking is, Matthew Asher, he's just asking. No, no, that would be the mocking voice, and that would be wrong. I listened back. What I did was I was talking about the people who are criticizing the Biden cabinet and saying it was too chummy, and they were using phrases like team of buddies. Now, it would be the mocking voice if I said, Team of buddies. Oh, you're a team of buddies. But I didn't mock the mockiness, the mock in my voice. It had a bit of mock. It was about it, mock two or mock three. But the mock wasn't for the phrase itself. The mockery was deployed in afterwards when I described the phrase team of buddies. And I said, oh, what a burn. Now, if you really want to break this down, I was mocking perhaps myself or someone who would criticize team of buddies, I was mocking the idea that this was, in fact, an insult. So I think the mocking voice is fine if you're not doing it for the direct quote. I was mocking in content when I said, oh, what a burn, or oh, how droll. That's fine, and that is a mocking voice, but it doesn't undermine the argument because it is adding substance, a substantive critique, the sarcastic assertion that it is not droll 
or it is not a burn. And all I'm doing is adding a little emphasis to that substantive critique. Oh, how droll, I could have said, but oh, how droll. Droll's better off the tongue. Mac Kratz. Now, here's, here's why my friends in the uh, pharmaceutical space, I understand what they're saying because they both acknowledge and a few people wrote in about my take on the ads. They said, look, I know you're having fun and I know you're exaggerating, but you should know the real science behind it. And oftentimes my position is, yeah, come on. You know, sometimes I just speak off the top of my head and I might get an example wrong. And I'll acknowledge that, right? Like when I said uh, Vanilla Sky, I think it was based on a French film. It wasn't as Heinrich Bramhaus and many others noted it was based on a Spanish film. Probably going to butcher the pronunciation. And don't write in if I do. Abre los hoyos. Abre los hoyos. Okay, so that was an example where I said, you know, I think it was based on a French film. Think it was. It wasn't. I was wrong. But, you know, I'm happy to correct it. But other times I will say something off the cuff. And if I get it wrong, it is just off the cuff. But sometimes the things I say off the cuff are actually researched. So when Mark Kratz writes in and says that uh, I quoted the Emperor Justinian as saying it's always darkest before the dawn in Latin, Mark Kratz says Justinian probably would have been quoting it in Greek, not in Latin. I do have to say I put in a little research and I looked it up. And Justinian was the last emperor who was a native speaker of Latin. So it's probably better if you can assume when I get it wrong, it's because I do no research. I guess the fact that sometimes I do some research undermines my basic defense that I do no research. Which brings me to a guy who claims to love the show. But just, just put yourself in my shoes and know that every three or four days I get a letter of this tone. Greg writes, what bothers me to no end is why someone is clearly intelligent and thoughtful in your interviews. Okay, it's nice. You got me. Here's the praise sandwich. Now, here's the slight critique. See if you can pick it up. Okay. So thoughtful in your interviews is often so spectacularly shallow and often pointless in your commentaries. I know it's easy to go after the crazies of the right and the left, your mindless attacks on progressivism, and seemingly no commentary on conservative policies really irritate me. Yes, yes, you weren't hiding that. I, I, I got that. I expect a lot more from you. Maybe that is too much to ask in a daily show, but I do think you have it in you. A question, is the arrogance you project in your commentary intentional? It's <laughs> intentional. Just a question. That expression on your face, is that by choice? Just a question. Your height, girth, and baldness. <laughs> Your height, girth, and baldness. Was that just thrust, sadly thrust upon you? <laughs> I, I, I have no answer to this, except to say I do feel the inquiries of this every so often. But I have to put that out there. As every day, someone tells me that I'm better than this or I have it in me. And let me assure all of you, I am exactly the same as this. I think I can prove it. Another stupid mistake I made in talking about Biden's electoral lie, this was one of those non-research off the top of my head, offered, yeah, I can't think of a president who between election and inauguration had so much happen. And John Stiglitz wrote in to say, Lincoln, that is true. It was the whole, you know, secession from the United States in between that time. So now we get to the lobstar 
of the Antan Twig. And how I was having a hard time selecting from all the people who ask me, are you really that ugly or is it just an act you're putting on? But I found on Facebook, on the Facebook Messenger app, which I never use, I don't know why I was there, a fellow named John Bell wrote in and say, hi, Mike Pesca. I'm a big fan of your podcast because you use language so well. I liked your Jonathan Lyons episode. I'm also a puppeteer. Huh, I wonder what he thought of the Frank Oz episode, denigrating the puppeteering arts. So he wanted to give me feedback. He said I pronounced pace wrong, meaning as per or the Latin use of pace, if you've seen it in writing, which means something like to take a kind exception to or acknowledging the exception of so-and-so. And John writes in and says it's pronounced pacey. Pacey. Is he right? Well, tell me, Mr. Dictionary. Pacey. Pacey. Aha. Now, I like when my pronunciation is corrected. If I get a definition wrong, I want to know it. And if I pronounce something a little wrong in an unacceptable way, especially a foreign phrase that I'm only using because I think it makes me smarter and I'm actually making myself dumber by saying it wrong, you know, making myself sound dumber because you say things wrong, that's not my fort. Well, I got to say, I'm not ashamed. I want to pronounce words correctly. And this is this opens up uh, delightful opportunities. For instance, I could make a statement like, you know, it is often the case that men's names migrate to women's names, but it doesn't work the other way around. Pacey, Tracy, and Casey. Or I could often say a lot of times husbands will take the heat and go to jail even if their wife did the crime. Pacey, William H. Macy. Or... Heavy metal guitarists do the windmill counterclockwise. It is believed because of hemispheric forces, Pacey ACDC. And with that, John Bell, you, sir, are the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth is so aghast at Q and QAnon, she has refused to eat quinoa and quince pudding. Margaret Kelly, just producer, takes it one step further, or a few letters in, she won't eat croquettes. And Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, won't even play croquet. The gist. You want to stop Q? It is hard. But the message to the Watkin brothers has to be, to stop Q, we are going after you. Um, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.